everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Weaving Myths. Weaving Myths is a podcast focused on tabletop role-playing games and specifically playing them through the play-by-post format. I'm your host, Nathan, and joining me today are Colin, Mordai, and Ruben. We're all moderators or administrators on MythWeavers, a play-by-post gaming website, and we're here to help you bring your game to the next level. As always, we are joined by the impeccable text chat, which members of MythWeavers are using right now to ask questions and contribute to the discussion. Today on the agenda, we have designing characters, applying for games, and planning games, all of which we'll be talking about over the next hour or hour and a half or so. At the end, we'll open the floor to a live Q&A session from the text chat where anyone can ask us anything, be it about MythWeavers, gaming, or anything else they want to know. So, without any further ado, let's jump right in. The first thing on the agenda is designing characters. So, we do this for every game ever. We do it for Dungeons and Dragons, we do it for Dresden Files, we do it for Pathfinder and Shadowrun and all of these things. So we want to really get into the nitty-gritty of how to design an effective character and how best to do your application. So, before we get started, does anyone have anything they want to say about designing characters? Any little tidbits before we get started? Yeah. One thing I'm going to recommend when you start doing your designing, use a word processor just in case your browser crashes. An excellent tip, and that is definitely something we're going to be talking about. We have a couple recommendations for how you can go about editing your application once it's all typed up. Text chat right now is saying that they didn't have to design characters for my game, and that is technically true, but I'm letting them come up with all the fluff for their characters. The actual character sheet making, that was all me. Yeah, depending on the system, if I'm running, like, especially if it's a one-shot, I'll normally make the characters ahead of time. It's just the thing I do. Like, I don't want people dealing with the minutia of that. I'd rather just make the characters and let them kind of fill the fluff in, in the details, but the actual mechanically speaking, the character's already done. Text chat is also pointing out the secret Grok, which, yes, I do need to make a character sheet for Grok at some point. It'll happen eventually. I said eventually last week. I didn't specify a specific time. <laughs> well, and to be honest, I really want to update the fate sheet, too. It's pretty outdated. Yeah, so speaking of designing characters and character sheets and all that, I guess we can talk about that a little bit. I know for sure that Rodrigo is slowly working on making it easier to update the sheets. I don't know the status of that, but I know people ask me a lot, hey, when is X character sheet going to be updated? And the answer right now is soon, we hope. Character sheets are really one of those things that are, I don't want to say not as important, but site mechanics and site functionality are definitely going to come first, especially ensuring improvements and stability, backups, etc. Jojo Lager mentions that character sheets work as long as they can hold the right numbers. Making them perfect isn't a high priority. I know for sure that Rodrigo wants to make them better than they are right now, but you're you're basically right. You can take a blank sheet of paper and make a character sheet out of, for any system almost, well, and to be honest, most of us Fate players have just been using field sets and tables to make Fate sheets and just post them in the forum anyway. It ends up looking prettier that way, I'm pretty sure, as well. Yeah, if you finagle it enough. Yeah, one of the issues with sheets is we always had more things we wanted to do than we ever had time to actually do it. Very true of most software development, really. All right, so moving beyond the base character sheet itself, I do want to talk about 
fluff versus mechanics. And where do you guys put your priorities? Do you emphasize fluff or do you emphasize mechanics or does it depend on the system or what are your thoughts? Uh, I think it definitely, at least partially, depends on the system. I mean, if you're running a D&D game, you certainly want to make sure the mechanics are correctly and you're building a viable party. But if you're running a fate game, maybe the mechanics come first. That and to a certain extent, you definitely need a lot of fluff just because play-by-post is a writing-first medium. And so you can't ever really skate on it, but I think it depends on the system as to what you prioritize. The point about it being a writing-first medium is is well put. I always emphasize having the character as a person first because they're going to interact with the other characters in the world, and that goes much further beyond just rolling dice. It's a lot easier to roll dice on a tabletop. There's nothing wrong with rolling dice on Mythweavers, and, and the dice generator is very good at what it does, but it really is a combined story action, and that's how I see it and how I craft it to my players when I create advertisements. I'm with Ruben and Mordai on that. I typically go personality, backstory, all that first. I'd call it the systems I play in typically are a little more flexible GM depending as far as mechanics, so I'm typically going a 65%, 35% blend of story versus mechanics. I'd rather work with the mechanics to make them fit the character than make the character to fit the mechanics. I'm going to slightly diverge, I think, from everyone else here on that. I tend to do a very high-level concept initially, where I'll kind of decide what I'm going to do, kind of give it a little bit of background. Then I'll generally go to the mechanics of the actual system I'm using to kind of flush that out a bit before I go back to the actual backstory to, to sort of inform some of the actual choices and decisions I'm making as, as, as the actual fluff side of that goes. But I didn't... Especially with play-by-post, you definitely want to have a lot of fluff there because, A, you need to be able to have something to back off. You need something that people can really, with as even the DM, and it's, it's a story-based medium like we've mentioned before, so you need to have the, the story aspect of your, story, your character actually pretty flushed out to make that work. Yeah, I'm actually going to back up David, too. Like, even when I'm writing a lot of fluff, I like to have the mechanics of my character done just so what I'm writing at least vaguely matches what the character can do. I mean, as an example of that, I think I did a Shadowrun re- character recently where I wanted to go very heavy on the cybernetic uh, implants. And I, so I, I ended up playing a lot with the mechanics on that first before I even started really the backstory side of it, just so I knew kind of what I was working with and, and how how extreme I was going to go with it before I actually even went down to the nitty-gritty on it all. Good question about would you rather have a fully fleshed-out character or a series of plot hooks to be used in the game? And I really don't think they're that separate. A pretty fleshed-out character is going to present plot hooks just by being a fleshed-out character? Not necessarily. I've seen characters written where they have a complete backstory of all of the epic deeds that they've done before the game started. And I find that to be less useful than a very terse description that identifies two or three key points where I can integrate them into the story quickly. All right, that's a great point. And I guess I'm kind of blinded by the backgrounds that I have seen lately. I think with the entire format of Mythweavers, it's really easy to go in and create this super detailed character and then have 90% of that detail be completely irrelevant in the end. Well, I think one of the things about presenting a plot hook is that it shows you've read the material, you're interested in the game, and that you're invested in working with the GM, so the GM's not just spoon-feeding you everything. 
That's very true, especially when you're trying to write an application for it. You want to make sure that the GM understands that you've done your research, are willing to put the effort in to stick around for the game, and that just, in general, increases your chances of being selected for a game. Oh yeah, certainly. I know I would much rather have plot hooks than, like you said, the really big fleshed out story of everything I've done before this. You know, when I used to run games, one of the actually biggest turnoffs for me tended to be that people would write background stories that just had no integration with the actual game I was running. And it was just like they basically had a generic application. They just kind of dropped it. And it never really, I just kind of avoided those kind of people generally. Oh, so did I for sure. So I know in the past I've seen people who have basically copy and pasted applications for similar games and then just tweaked little things to make it more relevant to the specific game. So you guys are not in favor of just doing that? No. And you know, a little bit of a pro tip, at least for some of us, when I'm looking at applications and I don't know a player, I will go back through their past game history to get an idea of how they play and what they've done before. I don't do that quite as often, but I GM a lot of games, and I've had the same player try to apply with the same character to multiple games. They didn't get into either of them. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, when I first started out, I really didn't, like, get that crazy about it. But after a while, I was pretty selective on choices generally. So, like, some DMs will definitely be more choosy. And if you can show that you at least read their content and, and try to make an effort to make a character that fits their story, they'll definitely probably favor you over somebody who's just doing a generic character. And it makes you a better player overall. Because you're not using the same material over and over. You're com- coming up with completely new material for each individual game. And... Like everybody says, practice makes perfect. So the more characters you make, the better you get at it, and the better your chances get after over time of joining a game. Well, for my end, a lot of like past applications end up being NPCs in different games or something like that. So it's not like all the effort is wasted or anything. Over in the chat, it looks like Jojo Logger has been reading our notes for this podcast. He hit on the key functions of the background, which is to show that you can tie into the lore of the game to inform the GM and yourself and the rest of the party about what your characters is like, what they can do, and they're giving plot hooks for the game master to tie in that character for future development. Yeah, no, those are kind of the three big things you want to look for. So I know the three categories I see most frequently that people ask for in a application is they ask for personality, backstory, and appearance. And backstory is kind of the most important one, and we just touched on that a little bit. But what about personality and appearance? How do those factor in? Are they as important, or are they important at all? Well, I want personality just so I can judge, is this person going to be a lone wolf, or is going to be a big instigator of problems, or is he generally going to try and go along with the rest of the group? I'd say personality is probably far more important than appearance. I, I almost never really care about the appearance. The appearance is mostly so that, A, we have some, some kind of description of what you look like, but I'm, I'm not going to base my decisions on appearance. Yeah, I don't think I've ever based my decision on appearance. Heck, usually half the time I'll just say, eh, give me a picture if you want. Exactly. Like it's For me, it's a very much a, a minimal part of the process. I include an appearance on my application strictly because it's another opportunity for them to give me a writing sample. Yeah, I was going to say that. It is a good kind of test of descriptive writing, if nothing else, but I think that's about all it's really important for. So can a picture replace the appearance section, or is it necessary to have both, or can you do one without the other? I prefer text, I at least prefer having a version in text, because that's going to sort of inform, like, having a picture is nice, and it is a good 
option for like helping people visualize your character, but being able to describe it and actually be able to put it in text is going to be important because otherwise, when you're actually trying to write posts out, you're going to reach problems where I'm not going to want, I'm not going to want to post your picture in the middle of a text blob. Well, speaking for me, I do like having a picture because I'll do I'll design up kind of post headers for each post, but that's simply just because I'm a designer and that's one thing I do. But yeah, I think the writing is so much more important. So the picture just augments the appearance section that you're supposed to write up in. Yeah. Yeah, I've found that too often a pretty picture can be a substitute for good writing. So I don't necessarily frown on putting a picture, but I give no credit for doing so. Yeah, that's probably a pretty good way to do it. Or if there is credit, it's very minimal. should be noted, if the player drew the image themselves, I will give that much more credit. I don't think I've ever actually seen that done. I would love to see that, though. That would be really cool, I think. I've had a couple, but they're pretty rare. Yeah, the most extreme I had with that, I think I had one player who actually commissioned art for their character at one point, which I, I thought was a little ca- crazy. No, I would count that. So what about someone who finds a picture online? I know I've done this a couple times in the past, where I found a picture, and then I describe what's in the picture. Is that too lazy, or should it augment what's in the picture? No, I think that's a fair show of writing talent. I would agree with that. Being able to give a good description of the picture does show an ability to at least explain what you've got as the character's appearance. It's not as easy as it sounds either. Jojo Lager has once again taken the words directly out of my brain and put them into the chat. It's like you're looking at an object and trying to paint a picture of it with words. If you can do that, that's fine with me. Yep. Now, if you give me a description and your picture's completely different, that's going to make me very leery. You definitely want consistency within your application. You want everything to match up. You want the personality to match the description, to match the appearance, to match the picture, to match the character sheet. Right. I mean, consistency is very important. I mean, if you can't keep basic consistency in a character application, how are we going to expect you to keep consistency throughout a game? Which could be several years' worth of posts. Easily. All right, so I want to back up a little bit and talk a little bit more about the specifics of the personality section. Are there any red flags that go up when you see certain things, or is there any things that you see that are, holy cow, this is awesome, I really want this? I like it when people focus a little less on just physical mannerisms. I mean, a lot of times I've seen personality just break down into a physical mannerism sketch and more about kind of goals and drives and how they react to things. And if I see something that looks like it's too sexualized or it's too antagonistic or it's, oh, I'm the loner who loans her own, yeah, those are red flags. I'd say definitely the loner and then also when you get the one with a destiny to do this or that. The player always seems to want theirs to be front center stage getting all the limelight. Yeah, that's another problematic one. I really, really like to see motivations put in a personality because that doesn't tell me how they act on a second-by-second basis, but how they're going to act as the character progresses. Yeah, oh, and if I'm doing something more fantasy, I really like seeing how people relate to their deities and maybe an example of like how they actually perform a prayer. That is an excellent point. Some of the best cleric or priest-type applications I've seen have included how they view their faith and those types of things. I'd like to steer clear of anything that describes in personality more about their equipment than the character. 
uh, yes, when the equipment substitutes for a personality. Yeah, seems to happen a lot in Shadowrun. Your person is so much more than what they wear. Though I have seen a couple examples where an item actually becomes very important, and they went into why this fighter's sword is so important. It's because it was handed to him by his father, who taught him about how to fight. I, mean, I generally agree with all the points. There's the exception, of course, based on type of game I'm running. Like, if I'm running an evil game, I'll tend to go more towards some selfish characters just because it kind of makes the evil parties a little more interesting. And I mean, those kind of games are done. You're kind of already in the boat of this is going to be a, a little bit of a, a mess, but that's kind of what you're going for. That's and true. It, well, the other thing with play-by-post, which is really nice, is that you can get a lot of, like, fractured party-type things going on in play-by-post that you can't really do in an actual tabletop setting. Because in tabletop, it's extremely important your entire party sort of works. Because if they don't, then you're not going to want to, like, sit in the corner with one person for or just start doing separate sessions between people just to handle that problem. Whereas, at least in, ta- in play-by-post, we can make private threads, we can split these things off, and we can handle the situations in a more interesting way. Oh, yeah, that's the great thing about play-by-post. The GM has infinite attention. I don't believe I'm familiar with that term, infinite attention. Basically, the problem with splitting the party in tabletop is that the GM can only talk to and interact with one group at a time, whereas because play-by-post is nonlinear in time, everyone gets acted to almost instantaneously. Yeah, basically, you never really feel like the DM is ignoring you because you're always kind of, even if you're in your own thread doing your own thing, the DM has the time to do it. A good example of this is a, it's a very small game called Don't Rest Your Head. It's basically... When you're playing that, the DM's only ever interacting with, or the, the person running the game's only ever interacting with one player at a time, which is generally fine in that game, mostly because the stories are interesting, but it leads to a lot of downtime for everyone else, and they just kind of start doing other things like playing on their phone. You really don't have that issue at all with play-by-post, thankfully. So I tend to be a little more forgiving with personality and play-by-post than I am with a tabletop setting. Yeah, I think basically with a personality, we want motivations a clear idea of why your character does something and not necessarily what it looks like when they do it. Motivations also help a lot in informing game direction a lot for me, too. Like, as a DM, I, I like motivations because it helps me basically build some interaction or build some encounters and stuff like that that might actually have interesting effects with your character. Yeah, and in most applications, I've found that the personality section is one of the ways I can weed out characters the fastest. I think it's a lot more important than most people think it is. I would definitely agree with that. People, when they apply for my games, I assign five points to personality, appearance, backstory, which is a little bit different than what I've heard so far, but I assign all of those equally, but the personality and appearance sections always get the short end of the stick, and people don't understand that that is one of the primary ways that I can find out if your character will fit into my game in the first place. Yeah, that's very true. Owen, just jotting back to pictures and appearance... I'm very tired of seeing pictures of famous actors for characters. I wouldn't say I mind it too much. It depends on what style of game, I suppose. Like for Shadowrun, you definitely don't want someone who's around right now. But maybe like a D20 modern game, I could see it potentially. I don't know. If they do doing D20 modern, they go with an actor's photo that looks like... I basically have to make I make them take the appearance positive traits essentially to, to justify it. Yeah, there is that. Actually, I cannot remember the last time I had someone describe their character as ugly. I've had a few of those. I've had some really good ones, usually when they get a charisma score of 6 or something on a D20 scale. Huh, maybe I'm the outlier. I don't get them frequently, but every now and then someone will just say, I am the ugliest person you have ever seen, and I carry a big stick. I think probably the phenomenon you're seeing is that people who will have 
average scores in their their physical appearance will tend to overly beautify themselves, whereas the people who have really outlying low scores will know that they need to be descriptive in their negative traits. Uh, that's true. Well, and I guess it's just very hard to find pictures of people who are average looking. Especially in a fantasy setting with everything being so like elves are always portrayed as very beautiful and elegant and then trolls and goblins and all those things are always very ugly. Yeah, that's true. There's really no middle ground. Oh, one thing I've seen in personalities that I really liked was a couple of folks writing about favored meals. I found that to be very kind of interesting and indicative of a character. Get to know a person by what they like to eat. I could see that, definitely. I think just more generally, just adding something that's not standard kind of helps you stand out a little bit. If we think of what we're trying to do with writing these characters, we're trying to make friends. And you should know how your friends act, how they behave. You expect certain things out of them. And if you don't have that context going into the game, it will make verisimilitude hard to maintain as the game goes forward and unusual behaviors crop up. Yeah, that's true. I think it's it's more important with play-by-post, I think, to have this kind of thing nailed down beforehand. Because at least with, like, in tabletop gaming, you can tend to, like, build, like, things like that out while you're doing it around the table, and it kind of makes the jokes out of it. But when you're doing it with play-by-post, you have a little less chance to do that before the game really begins, or even during the game. Like, inside jokes tend to form a little slower. So having that kind of built out ahead of time and, and things people can kind of riff off of and work with is generally pretty useful. And, and so, yeah, like, having meals, drinks, places you like going, even... Well, I think the one big uh, difference with play-by-post and tabletop is when we play a tabletop game, we're gathering presumably with our friends who we've all known a while, and we're all making characters together at once. But in a play-by-post game, everyone is making a character in a vacuum, and so you need to give the DM enough information so that he can kind of create a coherent party. Well, I played tabletop for many, many years, and there's nothing against it, but having that type of verisimilitude of being in character is a lot harder to achieve in a tabletop setting unless you have very proficient acting-type players. So I find that having the depth of personality and the depth of backstory and the depth of appearance matters less when it's a bunch of your buddies gathered around with their Mountain Dew and Cheetos rolling dice. Oh, for sure, and that's kind of my point. Like, you need to have that depth for a play-by-post game just so when the GM throws these five random players together, he knows they're not going to instantly devolve into infighting or they're going to, you know, dislike each other or whatever. So going back a few years, when I did some, I ran some games at a local game shop, and those were mostly random players coming together to play a game. Personality was a little important there, but again, it was it just sort of evolved naturally as the game went, which is something you really don't get a lot with. They play my post, you'll evolve as your character goes along, and, and, you, and you explore the story and you write these posts. But having that initial initial bit worked out helps just quite it, it definitely helps a lot and even just for yourself and just being able to write posts that are coherent from post to post and make sense like you need you need to get your own ahead of your own character a lot more with play by post than you would in a tabletop setting yeah for sure oh and just as an aside i want to stress that length of writing is not the same thing as quality of writing a lot of us gms have to comb through a lot of different backgrounds so being able to be kind of brief in your writing is really helpful. Absolutely. There's a famous quote from Edgar Allan Poe, I didn't have the time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead. 
what he's describing is the process of not editing your thoughts. If you can't edit it down to something that's easy for the rest of the players and the GM to read and react to in a short period of time, you're actually making it harder to play by writing more. That used to be me 10 years ago. I used to write posts that were stupidly long that weren't coherent. And it took me a long time to realize you need to, there's a lot more to it than just words. Absolutely. And that ties in very well to our next mini topic, which is English skills and how important they are. So I know when I read an application, I look for proper English and I look for grammar and spelling and all of those things. And I find that the some of the best applications are those that have been run through a word processor, like we were talking about earlier, or something like Grammarly, which is an online tool that automatically proofreads what you've written. And it tends to result in much better written sentences and more concise ideas. Do you guys have any experience with those types of tools? Uh, well, I just use word processors generally for spelling. I like to think I write well enough that I don't need the other ones so much. I almost exclusively use Google or uh, Google Docs for posts these days. If I'm going to make a post, I'll write it in Google Docs before I ever write it. I'm like, so I, I'll just copy and paste it actually to the Timothy Weavers. I want to actually write it in the text editor we have there. Of course, there are also times where it doesn't work, where a character portrayed has an accent or is intentionally adjusting the grammar to fit with the concept as well. Hey, man, if you're going to go too wild with that, remember that we have out-of-character tags, and it's really nice if you put in what they actually said in regular English in those tags. Absolutely, because if it takes me five read-throughs to figure it out, I'm going to kind of be banging my head on the desk by that point. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it comes down to frequently people gravitate to play by post because they don't have the time to dedicate to sitting down at a tabletop several hours a week at a regularly scheduled interval. So they need to be able to read the posts that have happened since their last post and come up with a response in the amount of time they have, which could be 10, 15 minutes tops sometimes. You can't be making it hard on your fellow teammates to run a game. Yeah, in general especially when I'm looking through applications, poor grammar and writing is just a sure way to get cut early. Well, and I'm not going to show people who write long posts. Like I've, I've been in games before where that was kind of the expected thing you did. Like it was, it was you well and knowing that you're going to really write descriptive long posts. It's, it's more of collaborative storytelling than anything else. And you're not really worrying about the mechanics as much. And that, so that's fine. But certain games definitely like you should have the expectations laid out kind of at the beginning of the game. What are, what are, what are the general expectations of your posts and how long they should be? Or if, or if you're writing too many, your posts are just too long in general. But it goes back to the 10 to 15 minutes of time. But if your GM is generally doing this only because he has so much time of it in the week, he might really prefer shorter posts in general. Yeah, well, I think you just kind of have to play it by ear and try to figure out what the style that the game you're in works best with. Maybe some games are a lot more about long posts and some games are about nicely edited, really concise posts. Oh, even the long ones should be nicely edited. That's true. I didn't mean to imply that. I will say, though, even especially when you've got players where English might not be their primary language, I can survive with some slight errors with grammar as long as they can still hit punctuation and capitalization. I'll survive minor grammar issues. Well, that's true, and If I have an ESL player, I'd really like them to be honest about it up front because I'm a lot more willing to cut them all in slack because they bothered to learn my language. Absolutely. Mythweavers is a global website, as I'm sure everybody is familiar. And we do have many players who 
use the site who have only just started learning English or have only been learning it for a couple years. And you don't want to just automatically assume that they're terrible at English. Sometimes they are ESL. No, for sure. I mean, most folks who speak ESL are actually quite good. Usually better than those that grew up speaking it. A big challenge with second languages is vocabulary and nuance. There are a lot of very complicated words and thoughts that go along with the medium of gaming that aren't words that they're going to use in their everyday ordinary experience as a English speaker. So it takes a certain getting used to the types of words that you have to read. Yeah, that's true. Yep. So like, for example, prestidigitation, I can't imagine that coming up in an ESL class. That seems like a fairly specific word that is that I've only ever heard in D&D terms. I love oh. prestidigitation. Mick the Rogue points out, or a normal English class, and yes, definitely, I, I've i never heard an English teacher say that word. All right, so next on the docket, does anybody have any really, really, really good characters that they'd like to share with the class? I have a couple here that I would like to share, and I'll go ahead and post them in the Discord chat, and I'll make sure to add them to the forum post afterwards. But the first one is Killian which was an application for one of my games that I was running. And that character is by Kirby. And the second one is Striker by Seeker of Truth. And it's a 7 instead of a T on Truth. But I'll go ahead and post those here in the Discord chat. And I see Ruben has linked to Beth by Matthias Jack as one of his excellent characters. Should be noted, I think that was his first application First application ever. All right, awesome. So that just goes to show that your character can be excellent, even if you've never made an application for a game ever. Going slightly back to backstory, my only second other thought there is I've seen tragic backstories so many times that I tend to actually like people who don't do tragic backstories. I am so there. Completely agree, man. Oh, goodness. If I have to see another orphan who's exactly. killed by goblins, and so he hates goblins. Uh, you know what I also like to add? When you kill off your entire family, you just killed off a bunch of plot hooks for the DM. So there you go, kids. Make your backstories happy. I'm not even saying happy, just just not like, oh my god, every single person you ever knew died. Yeah, I mean, that basically reads to me as, I'm disconnecting myself from your setting and from my own past so that I can't be held responsible for anything I might do in the future. Well, I think in some instances it also is kind of indicative of somebody who had their character's background screwed with heavily in the past. Yeah, it does feel like a little way to be like a comfort blanket. Like you basically say, oh, if I do this, they can't really mess with my family, or, or these people can't be brought further in the story to basically as a, as a plot hook, but that's kind of what we want. We want them to be plot hooks at a certain level. Oh, and we can always resurrect the family. Oh, that's always fun. Especially if <laughs> yeah. zombies. No, it's more fun if you turn them into undead. I did stitch one entire family into a macabre Flesh golem. So there you have it. Killing your family doesn't mean the game master can't still mess with them. I see a lot of Shadowrun too. Like Shadowrun especially, like people just seem to always have characters that are just deeply broken from the very start. You know, one of the best Shadowrun applications I ever got was for a Shadowrun nanny who had like half a dozen kids they'd taken care of who are now like young budding Shadowrunners. It was awesome. That sounds fantastic. What is selected in case anybody was, uh, you know, curious. All right, and our last excellent character comes from Mordai, and that is Sir Edward Velios by Dravda. This is the first character post that I accepted the moment I read it. It was that tightly written, and 
I don't think he edited it more than once or twice. And it might have been after I read it the first time. But looking at the quality of the writing, both from a giving the essential bits concisely and organizing it into a way that I can hook it into my story that he's already read it and hooked it in for me, I was sold. That's always great when that happens. The less work you make the DM do, oh, DM do the better it's probably going to go for you. Uh, going to the chat real fast, Tiffany Corda and both Jojo Alger pointed out Shadowrun's a little bit of a grim setting, so it tends to have more broken characters, but I'm talking more like not everything about your character has to be bad. Like there's there's things that can be good in your character's life that you might want to bring out in the background story, or just, just going straight up grim the entire way across the background story doesn't really, it's been done a lot and it doesn't really stand out. Well, and I'll point out too, Shadowrun is just as much punk as it is grim. You know, punks take joy in a lot of stuff. And just because you're a Shadowrunner doesn't mean you don't have families or hobbies or someone you care about. Yeah, not everyone can be Bruce Wayne. All right, so now we are moving on to our next topic of the evening, which is applying for games. So, in general, I think that you really have to factor in your real-life schedule and your internet schedule to balance out how many games you should apply for, how many you should even consider running, those types of things. So I'll pose a question to both chat and my co-hosts here. How many games are you guys running? How many games are you playing in? How did you find a good balance? Well, I'm running one game. The game I was playing in died, and I'm one of those individuals who doesn't have a real-life schedule because everything is constantly in a state of flux. So I'd be lucky if I could run two games and... I might be able to play in one or two at the most. I'm uh, running three, probably going to add a fourth, and playing in one, two, three, four. So about eight games for Ruben. How did you decide that number? Is it just you had a feel for it? or uh, A lot of long experience. In the past, I've had up to like 16 games going at once. I've had as little as like four. should be noted, I work from home, and for me, it's really nice to take a break from my work and kind of check in on a game. Yeah, mostly just long experience and just feel. But I've been playing play-by-post for uh, longer than I care to admit. So it's kind of an experience thing. It definitely ebbs and flows. I've had times when I've been much more loaded than I am now, but it it really comes down to the amount of time that you have available that you're willing to, to put into the hobby. I'm currently running five and playing in three. And that seems to be a reasonably good balance. I can get probably 30 to 40 minutes of posting in every night, and the games tend to even out. They're not always all posting at the same time. Yeah, it should be noted, like, at least a couple of these are pretty slow-moving. So it, it does ebb, but I find you want to stop before the point of realizing you don't have enough time to keep active with everything when there's a new post. And if you reach that point, you need to be open and honest with the players and the GMs in those games and say, I need to reduce my load, so I'm going to have to drop out of one of these games. Yeah, it's better to be honest up front than to drag them out for two or three weeks of not getting an update. Yeah, I'm currently only in one pure play-by-post game and two that are somewhat play-by-post and somewhat online, just like through online tabletop settings. I'm not currently running any because I just I tend to run one shots these days in person more than anything else. However, back when I was oh good, ten twelve years ago, I was one of those people who got way too many games. I was in I think at twelve games at one point, like playing them, and I was 
very much overwhelmed and I didn't let people know. And I was one of those assholes. So tend towards trying to figure out your limits before you basically slow down a game or, or ruin other people's day or, or games in general. Well, yeah, and there's no shame in realizing that you took on more than you can take. Just, you know, be honest about it. And if you're leading as a player, maybe try and help find your replacement. So I know I'm running two games and playing in one and hopefully a second one very soon. I'll be finding about that in the near future. I made the mistake of running a gigantic solo game, which had something like 30 players all at the same time. And that burnt me out for running games for a long time. And it's it's very true. You kind of get a feel for how many games you think you can really handle. Um, but I am curious, for someone who's brand new to Mythweavers, who has never played in a play-by-post game, how what recommendations would you give to them to know how many they should apply for or even try running? I wouldn't apply for more than two at once. The shotgun approach is rarely useful. I would do one or two at once. Once you have a game... Let it sit for a couple of weeks at least, and then if you still have more attention, keep adding one at a time. Yeah, basically start slow. Don't do what I did and just throw a bunch of like games out there. Just just kind of like pick one or two games you really are into, build characters for them, put a lot of work into it, and then if you see how that goes, and then kind of build from there. I will also point out we have a great reader function, and so if you just kind of want to check out a lot of games without having to apply, just start looking for games you're interested in and asking the uh, DM if you can be a reader. That's an excellent suggestion. That that means you can follow along with the game without having to commit to making posts in it necessarily. Right, it gives you a good idea of what your attention span is. Also going to, I think, Nathan's point on DMing games, um, if you're a new DM to play by post, don't take on more than one party at one time. Just try one party out first and see how that goes before you start adding, like... Because I've done games before where you're running four or five parties in one game, and they can be fun as a DM. It can be challenging, but it's also a significantly larger time commitment and effort commitment. For sure. I like to stagger my, like, GMing games at least two to three months apart. The important thing is to never rush things. It doesn't matter if you're going to start out by trying to apply for a couple games at the time, or you want to start out reading, the transition from tabletop to play-by-post, if you've got experience with tabletop, can be a little daunting sometimes, especially if you're used to playing with friends where you don't have to worry about detail, you don't have to worry about in-depth backstory. So always move at your own pace. Don't feel like you need to rush into things or dive into things hard, because that's the greatest way to burn out quickly. All right, so if you've picked a couple games and you decide, all right, I'm going to apply for these games, now you're still completely new to Mythweavers, how do you go about formatting your application? What types of BB code tags would make your application prettier, and how do you learn about those? First bit of advice, look what the DM wants. I know I'm very specific about formatting, and I, I actually use that to weed out applicants. And yeah, just steal the formatting from somebody else you like. Just quote their posts, take out the quote tags, and change the specific stuff. There's absolutely nothing wrong with borrowing formatting. Or if the game master is very specific about wanting a specific type of formatting, see if they're willing to provide a template that the players can copy from. Yeah, generally with Ruben, when I run games, I do very, very specific formatting, but mostly because that's how I sort and, and organize things internally. So I didn't, I tend to refine the format. So I, if people don't follow that, I just don't even consider them, honestly. 
yeah, I'm the same way. I really like my stuff organized a very certain way. Okay, so I know a couple weeks ago we talked about a couple things to avoid, specifically in advertisements like spoiler tags and OOC text. Should you kind of follow those same guidelines within making an application? I mean, I understand it. You still have to do what the DM asks, so if they're using those things, then of course use them. But if you're just completely coming up with a brand new one, are there things you want to use, things you want to avoid? Well, one thing I would consider is mobile devices are much more common now, and OOC text is a little hard on mobile. Spoiler can also be a little bit different, but field sets are definitely usable. Tables usually work out pretty well, too. All right, and I'm going to throw a link here in chat for everybody, and I'm also going to put it in the forum post when this episode goes live on SoundCloud. But this page is the Try VB Code page, and it lets you play around with different codes and tags and try and format things the way you want them to be. It doesn't have access to everything, like you can't use images on it, but it does have access to probably 90% of the things you would see in a post. I see you'll fix that. Also, it's wonderful. And realize it's slightly wider than a normal post. So sometimes if you're using tables and want them to line up correctly, it might push things around just a little bit compared to what you're going to see in a forum. Should also fix that. And then also, if you're going from the try VB code to the actual post, it's never a bad idea to click go advanced and actually choose the preview post to actually see how it's all going to lay out in an actual post on the game. Oh, for sure. I don't think I post anymore without previewing what I'm going to post. Oh, should we talk about the ability to rip a stat block from the sheets into the game? Definitely. I don't know exactly how many sheets that is available on, but I know it's for sure available on most of the D&D ones. I'm not sure about the rest, though. So here's the thing. I will actually use a dummy sheet for a stat block in systems we don't have. Usually I'll just use fate, but anything that has a stat block section can use that short code to insert a formatted stat block. Okay. I'll make sure to add that to the relevant links when we go live on sound. Just paste that into my notes here. So basically, if you have a stat block formatted like you like to see it in the post, just make a sheet, cut that code into the sheet where it says stat block, apply that sheet to the game, and then you can use that little short code to insert a stat block. That is extremely useful. I don't believe I knew about that before now. Yeah, there's documentation on the various stat block short codes, but yeah, like a little quick line of code will insert a stat block into every post that you want it. All right, and last but not least, we before we move on to our third topic of the evening, does anyone have any cool application formats that they've seen or used that look really pretty that they'd like to share? And I'll pose that to the chat as well. If you guys have some that you'd like to share, I'd be happy to look at them. So I just posted a fake character sheet I uh, worked up for one of my games. Awesome. I know fate always needs more players, and the sheet definitely needs updating, so this is already prettier than what we have existing. Well, that's a good example of how to nest out-of-character tags into a table. Just to how to condense a lot of dense information into a very kind of small sheet. And the second post below it has all the code about how to make that. Excellent. And for anyone who's looking at these these templates and looking at the code and going, holy cow, this is way too complicated. There's no way I'll ever understand this. The easiest way to read code for BB code is look at the opening tag 
find the closing tag, and then move on to the next one. That will make it your life so much easier when you're trying to figure out what exactly everything does and how it works. There's another example. This is for Shadowrun Anarchy, and it uses tables, field sets, and out-of-characters. Dang, I wish I had the time to figure out some of these. <laughs> They're so pretty all the time. I do have one I would like to well if I can find it. I'm not sure where it ended up. I'll have to... I'll find it and I'll put it in the forum posts after editing. It looks like Jojo Lagger has linked one for, I believe he said, Warhammer 40,000 FFG systems. And I will make sure to include that one as well. All right. I think it's time we move on to our last planned topic of the evening. So this last topic is planning a game and the process for planning a game. So it sounds like pretty much everyone here has run a game before. So... What steps do you guys take to set up a game before you even put out an advertisement? Do you write out a plot summary, or do you have NPCs already prepared, or what steps do you guys take? I like to have a kind of a bullet list of stuff I want to kind of go through on the game. I certainly want to set up the game forum because I find that very useful for organization. And it lets me kind of see what I've done already, and I just use the game forum in private to organize what I've already done. But I want at least, I want everything that the characters are going to interact with up front and available first. So like in a Shadowrun game, you would set up Mr. Johnson for sure, and the place that they're going to be in at least. Yeah, maybe. It would be more, here's a little synopsis of what corporations you can kind of expect to run into. Here's the area of the city I expect you're going to have your safe house, stuff like that. Yeah, if I'm going to run a game, I tend to like to have things sort of setting-wise, especially like Shadowrun, I'd want, I'd want basic setting things like, yes, here's your main contact, or maybe at least this is a part of the city you get your 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 job from laid out, and maybe some maps of certain areas of the city that you're going to be probably in quite a bit. For me, personally, I also like to have the skeleton of the kind of first adventure I'm going to run already set out, just so I have some stuff prepped up front in case things get busy later. I tend to be more loose with play-by-post than I am with uh, actual tabletop in that I, I like to set out outlines for what I'd like to be, for the, the, the people to do, but I tend to let them be a little more expressive and have a little more control over the actual scenario in play-by-post. Oh, yeah. I mean, my preparation is really a bullet list with a couple of maps if I think I'm going to need maps, but yeah. Yeah, basically that. I, I like to leave play-by-post a little more loose, whereas tabletop tends to require a little more actual planning. Well, I mean, the nice thing about play-by-post is you have so much more time to think about a reaction. Exactly. I almost always tend to go with sandbox setups. I Sometimes I'll do a plot, but if I do, it's going to be very, very loose and flexible just because the players I tend to select might completely rebel against the plot, and I have to be able to rapidly adapt to a new direction. I do know that I like to have all the formatting I expect people to use already set up with actual cut-and-paste examples. There's a specific format you have to develop for every post, and it's nice to have that laid out way ahead of even before you even put, put up an advertisement. I don't tend to do that for my games, but... What a lot of this boils down to is you want to be able to get to gaming as fast as possible from planning. The longer you have to wait, the more likely it is that people are going to lose interest or the game's just going to come to a screeching halt before you even really get started. From the time you close your application to the time you start playing should be less than a week. It should just be, all right, you're in. You know what's going on. We're going to go. Yep. If once they finalize characters, it's, it's, you should be ready to go. And really, I try to make things as easy on the players as I can. 
So all the information you need to find, I want it well-organized. I want it out there, but I don't want too much of it. I mean, if you post too much information, nobody's going to read it all, and then that's just as worse as not having anything. Then there's also the risk of accidentally GM monologuing for far longer than you intend to in an intro, which I've been guilty of in the most recent game. Well, I've done that too. Yep. I think every GM has done that at some point or another. The problem is some of my players could literally smack me upside the head in real life. It's not just monologuing, though. It's also the introductory scene. It can't be too passive. You really need to get the players to engage very quickly. Well, and that's kind of another point. I hate to say it, but in play-by-post, you kind of got to railroad just a little bit more than you would otherwise. You have to instigate things, and you have to kind of assume small actions from the players from the get-go. That being said, you really can't overplan it. Play by post game. I think there was one game, was one of my first games I ever ran. I planned the crap out of it. I mean, I was, I had maps and details and it's one of the reasons I definitely plan a lot less than I used to is that basically they went a completely different direction. I lost, like a lot of the light work I did was pretty much for nothing. In an ideal world, I'd like to start the first post out, uh, with here's the situation you're in. Now roll initiative and we're going to start with action. That's a good way to start it. Yeah. I like, I like that. Depending on the system, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, for Shadowrun, I like to start them in the middle of a job that just went bad. What that really does there is it builds basically character interactions through combat, and it actually helps people kind of get to a point where they're naturally interacting with each other in some extent. Yeah, well, and it forces action immediately instead of letting people kind of sit back and not post for a while. For the uh, traditional fantasy setting, if you're going to do the tavern thing, I really recommend doing that either in the planning stage or in the application stage because you really don't want to spend weeks and weeks talking about quaffing your favorite brew and pontificating about what we might do if we were going to go out and actually adventure. One thing I've actually done is start with that action, but then I start a separate thread that's open role play called the tavern where people can then kind of at their leisure explain how they all met in the tavern and got to the point they're at now in the actual game. I do like doing that during character creation because it sort of creates the ability, or it gives the ability for people to kind of interact with each other and also to build character backgrounds that kind of interlace a little bit so they have more reason to be together in the first place. So you do that at character creation during like the actual application step, like that's pretty a pretty solid place to do it. Yeah, well, and you just leave it going because it's not the primary focus, but anybody who wants to keep posting that can and it's kind of a supplemental for the players who have a lot more time to post more often. Early party cohesion is absolutely critical. You can't have them feeling out those interactions in the first couple of days, or you might find out that the characters weren't designed to get along with each other. Which is yep. why you, you start with a threat. Right. But even so, you know, after when there's not action going on, you may end up with characters who were just built with personalities that are incompatible really would rather find that out before those become the characters that they're going with. They don't have, they don't feel the license to modify the character to a drastic extent once the game's started. Oh, for sure. Plus, this is another way to kind of supplement an application by kind of having a role play before anybody's actually chosen. Yeah, it gives you kind of an idea of how they're actually going to play the game and how they'll interact with other players in the game itself. So if you find two players who are really interacting well in that, you actually might motivate certain decisions when you actually go to pick players. I know that I like to start out games with some sort of something happens, it basically blows something up, as we keep mentioning in the past weeks or so. But you basically want to blow something up to bring everybody together immediately. I don't think it necessarily has to be a 
battle or a fight, but something has to go wrong or something has to be like, this needs an immediate response to bring everybody together right off the bat. Basically, you have to start by instigating a problem instead of letting players instigate the action. Not that there's anything wrong with letting the players instigate the action if they're going to, but don't expect that they're going to do it on their own without your help. Agreed. Give them a chance if they're going to instigate, let them by all means, but don't assume it, ever. Don't just start a, a thread with, you're in a tavern, and there's people there. Like you, you should at least give them a hook to instigate that action if you're going to let them try to instigate the action. Oh, tavern, that's a pretty original setting there. Exactly. <laughs> the most generic of settings you could possibly think of. Well, and don't fall into the trap of giving them too many options. Give them one or two very obvious options. Yeah, like, give them an obvious hook, and if you want them to bite on it, if they don't take it, that's going to just meander for a while. So you, you then you need to force it. A good way to view it for those that are familiar with the Choose Your Own Adventure books that were common about a decade ago, those books would give you two to three choices at most. They would never give you an overload of options that would kind of stick you in place with indecision. That's a pretty good pattern to follow. I hate to say it, but it was more than a decade ago based on when I was reading those Choose Your Own Adventure books. Christ, don't tell me that. Don't Shut tell up. me that either. Wait, Mordai, you are older than most of us, so it just means they started before we remember. Fair enough. I, I, I can't possibly be the oldest one because I think Michael has that honor, but uh, I'm pretty up there. I believe I will be showing my age by saying that I have never read a Choose Your Own Adventure book. What? You never read one at all? Shocked gasp. Yeah, I have never read one ever. And if anyone was wondering who one of the younger members of staff is... I think I read my first one when I was, what, six? Yeah, I read that shit in elementary school. I'd always cheat, though. I'd read ahead to the options and pick the good one. Oh, but it was so much fun to have your brains turn to jelly and become a zombie. <laughs> anyway, pulling things back on topic. Sure, so... I'm curious, everybody runs all these games, and there's constantly games being run on Mythweavers. And part of the planning process is picking an idea of what your game is going to be. Where do all these ideas come from? Well, for me, I'm running stuff that my tabletop group isn't necessarily interested in, but I'm really interested in. Yeah, for me, it tends to be, like, I have a really an idea I really like, and I just don't have people I can run it with, so I'll... I'll make a game on Mythweaver to see if I can find people to actually find that would, that would actually be interested in the same concept I am. And those concepts can come from anything. Like, it could be, I'm reading a book and I really like this one particular world, so I go along with that. I kind of tend to figure out that at least half my games are kind of spun out of TV shows I really, really like and that kind of no one's really, you know, interested in. Well, my tabletop players aren't interested in, I should say. Oh, and Tiffany makes a good point, too. A lot of it is also stuff I just want to play myself. Also, I've run into systems before where they just work better as play-by-post, honestly. Like, I did a one-shot uh, a while back of a, play a Pokemon game. It was a Pokemon RPG. It was fan-made. Having done it on tabletop and having played it also play-by-post, it's way better for play-by-post. Just the, w just the way it was designed fits that, and so it makes games on Mythweavers a, more, a, a, a better choice. Like, just there are certain games that just run better on a play-by-post setting, so that's why I, I end up doing that. Yeah, I have a fair bit of that, too, just figuring that, oh, I'd really like to spin this out on a slow basis, so I'll do it play-by-post instead of tabletop. 
Z Alchemy, uh, Alchemist, I think it was PTU. Exactly. It was super clumsy in real time. And beyond that, even having multiple party members, you needed to have the time and interaction to have people separated and like be able, people be able to do their own things. Like if you have two or three Pokemon masters, they're, they're going to be doing their own thing. It just, they don't really work as a party. So having the ability to separate them out and let them do their own thing was important. But this goes to a question that somebody just asked in chat about PT or PTA both being very clumsy to actually do in real time. Yeah. I've also picked games that I've already run in tabletop just because I already know the setting well and I have all the notes already written. So it's kind of easy to do it again because I really want to see what happens in that game with a second set of players that I haven't gamed with in forever and ever. I tend to pull ideas from books or movies I've watched and go, oh my god, that would be so cool as a Pathfinder or a Shadowrun game. I must do this. And that's generally how it comes to be. I do always enjoy... A lot of my ideas for cool moments or general story arcs do tend to come from books. Yeah, well, I'm starting up a Dressed Files game, kind of riffing on American Gods, just because I reread the book recently and the show's kind of going on. One of the other games I actually ran long, a long time ago was um, I had a story idea I liked a lot, and so I ended up writing a game in that setting just so I could kind of get more ideas for that story and that and that world in general. So some of it just came out of just pure, like, this is a thing I like, or this is a thing I've created, and I kind of want to like build my own repertoire of ideas for that. So when you have games like that, you tend to actually inform people that you're ahead of time. You're you basically created this thing, and you're trying to you're, you are doing it for story reasons. All right. So basically, in a nutshell, you can pull an idea from almost anywhere to run a game. It sounds like video games, TV shows, books, movies, or just things you've already done before. And there's a pretty good bet there's there's some wild systems out there that pretty much cover anything you want to do, too, which is half the reason I run games. Sometimes it's just for an interesting system I found randomly. I think that's a lot of my kind of uh, inspiration as well. I mean, I use the same ideas I use for tabletop. It's just Play by Post has a, such a larger audience that can try out the weird systems that, you know, my regular players won't use. The same holds true if you're applying a lot of house rules that are going to dramatically alter a system. Play-by-post tends to be a better forum to actually test that out than subjecting your poor friends to it. Yeah, I've actually been playing with... um, So Traveler was... I've been playing with a fan-based rule set of Traveler called Mercator, which I've actually been modifying for... 17th century ship combat, which I'm trying to like play out, but I'm probably going to do a play-by-post just to test the system out when I've actually got the rules modified in the way I like. So like, a lot of times I'll use play-by-post as a testing case because it's something I just I wouldn't want to subject people to until I've actually had more. And not to say I subject people randomly on play-by-post, I'd probably tell them ahead of time this is a very much a testing situation where I'm trying to figure out rules for a system and just kind of build something out of that. Well, and a good point, too, about letting some of the wouldn't-it-be-cool-if games sit for a while just because it is just a flash in the pan. And to put another one on that, if you're going to run a game and you're doing it with a system you're creating or you're modifying rules for, and you're doing it kind of like seat of your pants, you should let people know this when you're in the application process so that they at least know what they're getting into with that. Oh, absolutely. Especially when it's more, hey, I made a system as opposed to I modified because if they don't know they're part of a playtest, they're going to be a little cranky if things come apart because of a mechanics glitch or something like that. Exactly. Like, if you're doing a playtest, you need to make sure that you have some kind of, A, the people that are, are informed, and B, they're willing to accept the fact that things might change on the fly based on, oh, this literally broke the world. All right. So we still got a couple more things to talk about before we move on. 
I also want to talk about notes. How detailed should you get with your notes? And do you want... I under, It's definitely possible to over-plan a game like we talked about. But when you're doing your notes for yourself, do you want to have stat blocks at hand? Do you want to leave those open until it comes up? Or how do you guys handle your notes? I'm pretty loosey-goosey. Just kind of make it up as I go along. Yeah, I tend to be pretty lax with my notes. I'll I'll keep notes on what they're like on things they've done and where they're going and my current plans moving forward. But again, I keep a very loose outline of where I want things to go from any particular point. I don't really ever keep a this is exactly what's going to happen at this point. With what I'm running right now at least, I mean once I get past the last little bit of intro, I don't really need notes because of the way the system is set up. But on the flip side, if something happened to me and I, for some reason, vanished, as long as the player has the core book, they can step into the Game Master role without really suffering a break. Uh, RMB brought up a point, which is that in short games, like if I'm doing a one-shot, I'll plan that entire thing out from start to finish. There won't be any like room for really side movement because one-shots tend to be very much a... This is what's going to happen, and it's normally an introduction to a system where it's something very quick and fast. So if it's a short game, I, I'll definitely railroad a lot harder than I would in a longer or long-term game. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, the nice thing about play-by-post is you've got a really good detailed record of what the players have always done. So if you're running a reactionary-style game, you don't really have to keep all that detail in notes because it's still all there. That's a much more concise way to put it than what I said. Thank you. My only caveat there is I tend to cliff... Once a segment's... I'm trying to think of a good word for this. I'm sure there are words for it. Good, like Once this particular like chapter is completed, I'll tend to cliff note that for myself, just so I have a record of what happened there, but I don't have to go back to the entire posting history of that. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, it should be noted, I tend to run systems for play-by-post that a stat block is rarely more than four or five lines of information anyway, so it's not like they're hard to come up with on the fly. That's true. Most D&D monsters or Shadowrun enemies can be summed up with, oh, you know, HP, AC, attacks, spells. And that's basically it. Well, yeah, in Shadowrun Anarchy, it's really, I think I have three lines. Offensive, X-Dice, defensive, X-Dice, social, X-Dice, and that's about it. It's really nice that systems are moving in that direction where it's more streamlined and you can have a monster in three or four lines or a character that only has a couple different things that you need to know. I wouldn't call anything about Shadowrun 5th Edition streamlined, to to be honest. I, I think that's a hallmark of Shadowrun in general. I think about the time I learned Shadowrun's um, explosive rules, I realized just how complicated this system can actually be. There is a flowchart that exists just for uh, addiction rules in that in that game system. Man, isn't Shadowrun the best? Man, I've ran it since 1st Edition, and I still ignore about 80% of the rules. Alright, and the very last thing I want to talk about before we move on to the game of the week is how to organize your game form. Now, I think we touched on this very briefly last week, but what sections and what folders do you guys put in your game forums to make them more organized? Well, I've got the main thread group just has what is currently going on. I've got an archive folder, an applications folder that is used whenever someone needs to be replaced an information folder to kind of cover what there is as far as special equipment, etc. that the main rulebook didn't have, and then a party folder to actually have this is who is currently in the game. 
I'll usually have an additional folder for private threads. Yeah, I'll keep character private threads and stuff like that to specific, uh, a specific subfolder. I tend to just go with archive, characters, setting, and rules. When I'm running D&D or Pathfinder, I find it's useful to have a subforum for handouts specifically. So maps, NPC profiles, rewards, those types of things as well. But it sounds like the standard ones are archive, characters, out of character. For games where there's a level progression and granting of experience, I always keep a thread specifically to identify when I've given those rewards so it's easy to find later. Yeah, it is nice having kind of an experience log. In the past, I've mostly done that and character threads, but I, yeah, a, a centralized thread for that would make a lot of sense. I do tend to like to keep the current game thread in the main forum along with the out-of-character posts. Absolutely. A basic principle of web design is to minimize the number of clicks that it takes to get the information you need to three max. So having to click to get to Mythweavers and then click to get to the game forum and then having to click to get to a subforum and then clicking on the thread to finally get the information that you needed, too many clicks. Efficiency is key when it comes to keeping your forum organized. Yeah, I tend to be pretty OCD about cleaning up my forums. I, that's just me as a person. So I'll keep that pretty clean. No, I'm right there with you. All right, well, I am hearing from the staff, and it sounds like we are in consensus that we would like to take a five-minute break. So we will be taking a five-minute break. And we will be back very shortly, after which we will do the game of the week, and we'll do the live question and answer session. So stay tuned! All right, and we are back. So, I want to jump right in to this week's game of the week. And this week's game of the week is The Little White Ark, run by Cleocatra. I'm definitely sure I butchered that name, and I'm so sorry. Cleocatra. Okay, my apologies. The Little White Ark is a game using the Dresden file system, which definitely does not get enough love on Mythweavers. So it's nice seeing a fantastic game using that system. The Little White Ark is interesting in that the characters will be made using the Dresden files rule set, but the gameplay itself will be freeform. If you're not familiar with freeform, it's basically it basically means that players and the GM can post in any order and can do basically anything within the game. With some restrictions, I'm certain. Cleocatra has said that the game will be closing in three to five weeks, so or the application process will be closing in three to five weeks, so there's still plenty of time to get those applications in. As always, for those of you listening to the recording, to the link to The Little White Ark will be in the relevant links section of the forum post. I'm going to post the link to that game in the Discord chat right now. So give it a look, put in an application, it looks like it's going to be an awesome game. As a personal aside, Cleo is a great GM. I've had minimal experience with Cleocatra in the past, but from what I understand, they are one of the most dedicated DMs or GMs on the site for sure. Yeah, they also been she's been around for our they've been around for quite a long time. I remember them when we first started, really, and before that, honestly. Been a mod for at least as long as I have. All right, and now it is time for everybody's favorite part of the show. The question and answer segment. So ask your questions. You can ask about anything you want. You can ask about Mythweavers. You can ask about games. You can ask about anything we've talked about so far. If we've missed something, please bring it up and we'll be happy to talk about it more. Bring on the questions. Mordai has just linked a very useful resource that I did not know existed. 
It is a catalog of people who play Freeform on Mythweavers. And I'll make sure to include that in the forum post as well. I'm just watching Tiffany type. Okay, there we go. I would let an advert run for longer than maybe a month. So for reference, Tiffany asks, how long do you think an advert should last? I'd say three weeks minimum. I typically run mine about a month just to be safe, but then again, I'm also running the more obscure system right now. I usually let my advertisements run for three to four weeks. However, my most recent game that I just advertised for, I closed within a week because I had gotten almost 40 applications in that time frame. Closing it too short poses the hazard of catching people who have a passing interest but don't maintain a lasting relationship with the game. So I generally go for at least two weeks, if not three or four. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever actually closed applications before three weeks. I think I've got it once at three weeks, and that was only because I had enough applications at that point that I liked and the people were interested that I, I went with it. So I'm going to butcher this name again, and I'm sorry, but Theorge D. Skyler 13 asks, What are the admins and mods' thoughts on Critical Role? I personally have never seen it, so I have no input. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with I've never actually watched it, but I have friends who really enjoy it, so... I mean, that's about the best I can do for that. I like it. I think it's a good ambassador. It's entertaining. I also think it probably sets a fairly high bar for some folks. I have only heard of it, so I'm not actually familiar enough to give a comment on it. Basically, it's a bunch of professional voice actors getting around and playing role-playing games. It's pretty entertaining, and it's kind of run as entertainment. It's a reasonable... Well, I sent it to my in-laws to explain what role-playing was. I've sent it to my sister. It's a pretty good thing to show other people to say, this is what I do. Typically, when I'm showing people what I do, I reference the indie film, The Gamers, and just let them do with that what they will. I just call it collaborative storytelling, and they go with it. Actually, yes, I have used that as well. That's a good point. To be fair, I haven't seen a ton of it, and I'm kind of much more of a I'd like to play than just watch somebody play person. That tends to be my view on it. It's like I, I've heard about it. I've my friends have talked about it, but at a certain level, I'm just I prefer to play the game. I don't really like like live streaming. Like for like when we watch people like play games, I tend to be more of the I'd rather play it than watch it. Except for like certain games where I just don't have any desire to play it. Kind of took the words right out of my mouth, David. With only limited time for amusement activities in a week, I'm going to spend it doing things. Yeah, I'm glad it's out there. It's a great ambassador. I usually save Let's Plays and streams for scary games because I can't play scary games. They freak me out too much. So I usually just watch someone else play them. For me, it's mostly JRPGs because most of them have so much story that I don't want to play through the game part of it. I just want to watch the story parts of it and not actually have to deal with the, the, the gameplay that's questionable sometimes at best. Yeah, most Let's Plays I actually do are uh, mostly walking which is all adventure games, and I have that up kind of to watch when I'm working. They are extremely good background noise. If you need something that you just want to listen to. You'd laugh if I told you what my background noise was. Oh, now I'm curious. It's Stargate SG-1. I started season one, and I'll just watch it through season 10 when I need background noise. I do love SG-1, but Old King Cole asks, how do you handle combat maps in play-by-post? That's something we can definitely answer briefly, but that would be a... Excellent topic to actually cover in a future podcast as well, in depth. For me, briefly, 
I make the maps the combination of Illustrator and Photoshop. I grid them out with letters on one side and numbers on the other. And if combat positioning is important in the game, I have players call out their um, coordinate moves each turn, and then I will update the map every turn by hosting a new version of it. Another good solution that I've heard people have had success success with is Roll20 or Fantasy Grounds. Both of those I've seen have had success. I've used Fantasy Grounds for years. It's a great program. So when I used to run a lot of play-by-post games, I used to it was a old program. I don't even think they really developed it anymore. I actually had a pretty good relationship with the guy who developed it. It was a small program to just make maps, but honestly, like with play-by-post, I tend to, to fudge it a lot more than I would with a actual tabletop setting. I feel the story is more important there than the actual positioning of things at that point. One thing I have done is take zones from Fate and just use those for almost any game. One time I actually used Neverwinter Nights. That was kind of weird, but it was fun. I just literally took like screenshots of like maps I made with their uh, character creation tools. That's a clever way to do it. I would not have thought of that. Yeah, there's enough kind of just online mapping tools available now that you can... So long as you grid it out or kind of give players a way to indicate where they move, it's just a matter of the DM moving everybody every turn and posting an updated map with each new combat round. One of the things I don't recommend, which is really laborious, was literally using tables for a map at one point. That took a long time and it was a lot of effort. Yeah. Are you talking about, like, Excel tables? No, I I, I used, like, table tags and built, like, a big table. It was, it was a pain in the ass. I did that as well. There were regrets. Excel works very well. Just set all of the cells to be square and go with it. And you can also do that with the Google version as well. And if you give all the other players editing permissions, they can move themselves. Brilliant. Oh, man, there was a great mapping sharing program that was used. Now, for the life of me, I can't remember where it is or what it was called. I was friends with the developer of this one mapping program. I can't remember the name of it for the life of me, but... Talking about Ditsy? Yes. So Old King Cole also asks, wasn't Mythweavers dabbling in some kind of built-in map thing a long time back? And that is still a feature. It is open to community supporters on the site, and it is still in the early stages of development, but it is functional, and I've used it before, and it works fairly well, but it's missing some key things that I would like to see in the future to make it more useful. So... The short answer is that Rigo and I have spent a lot of time, both of us, in both separate endeavors and combined endeavors, working on mapping tools. And it's still a a work in progress of things we'd like to get done, but it's a large development task. We're talking about something that takes a lot of effort and time and, and, and programming time that neither of us has a lot of time to do. So it's something we'd love to do, and it's something we want to do at some point, but at the same time, it's something that both of us have to balance with our both our, our, our lives outside of the site. And yes, we have demos of a, a working version that is something that does work, and it's something that we both feel could be improved, but at the same time, there are things that we could do to just make a better version of that that is entirely separate from what we have released. It's it's a complicated topic that would be... I, I could spend hours talking about just the details that would go into something like that. And I could give a lot of kind of information on using something more akin to a, a fate zone setup. I will say, David, it is nice to have one of the code type admins in here to answer these questions. Yeah, I mean, a mapping tool is a complicated... There's so much that goes into that. Like, like from what the end user actually ends up doing to what the actual back end of that looks like, is it's a significant amount of code. It's We can only whip the hamsters so hard. 
if I, if I could pull it off in a fast amount of like, in a quick amount of time, I'd totally do it. But it's just not one of those things you can do quickly. I mean, we're talking about game companies have spent years perfecting their level editors, which is essentially what you want with a mapping tool. Is you want a game level editor, and and you're you're talking about something that people spend years of their life working on. And to do that for a, the website, especially in the browser, is it's very it's, it's like I I applaud what they've done with Roll Twenty, and I have complaints with what they've done, but at the same time, what they've done is actually very good for what you can do in the web. All right, George D. Skyler thirteen again asks, how do you guys feel about some of the options on the D and D five E wiki? Oh man, they need to be really heavily edited and kind of vetted. There's some really great stuff on there, but there's some really, really terrible stuff there, too. I would really kind of take a hairy eye to most of it. I generally don't use third-party material, so I tend to stay away from things like that. But when I was converting a couple things from Pathfinder over to 5th edition, I found it extremely handy to kind of find something that someone had already done and then modified it, modify it for my purposes. Yeah, I guess I've never used anything from there unmodified. I mean, that's the thing about a lot of third-party stuff is there's just the balance and the editing is often not as good, especially if it's fan-made. And so you have to be really, really kind of particular. And I've generally found if I'm running the game, it's just easier to disallow it altogether than to keep going through case-by-case exceptions. I think that's kind of like 3.5, where like at a certain point, people were just making extremely custom classes and content, and you just had to li- you had to rein it in at a certain level. More mechanical options does not make the game more better. Yeah, and I've really found as long as you kind of have all the core and like official options available now, there's not really been anything I haven't been able to duplicate. So RMB asks, so I wonder, what would people think of neutral or good orcs in a setting as opposed to the usual evil ones? That's been done a lot, actually, I think. Yeah, and I love them. Yeah, I think it can be done fine. I mean, I've, in a tabletop game I'm playing actually right now, well, I was playing in, uh, one of the pillars was a lawfully or chaotic uh, good orc, and it was fine. It worked. Yeah, just just because it's an orc doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be evil. I know Pathfinder does this really well, where you can have orc player characters. Yeah, I'll echo Mr. Rich Burlew, who writes Order of the Stick. It's really important to have the motivations behind the various sentient races that are laid out in your world. Usually evil tends to imply that they've been given a position in civilization that doesn't really lend itself to doing nice things in order to get along. So there are plenty of opportunities for neutral or good races who have developed symbiotically with others in the area or or simply have enough resources that they don't feel like they need to do bad things in order to survive. Well, I think like 5th edition sort of has that built in with the fact that you can have like outsider or outlander tribes that are just they live outside of society, but at the same time, they still can function within society. So you can you can definitely have good orcs or even neutral orcs. Like you don't have to be evil to be an orc in that in that particular regard. You can just be somebody who grew up outside of society and just works within or is trying to learn how to function within a actual civilized society. And I think that goes for any race, really. It's not just orcs. I mean, you can have tieflings that are good. Yeah, in the same party like that, we had a tiefling who was actually also good, so. <laughs> I was going to say the vast majority of tieflings I've seen have actually all been good. And just because Order of the Stick came up, another 
webcomic that kind of covers the non-evil tribes is the Goblins webcomic. So the idea of Goblins aren't all evil, sometimes they're tribes just surviving. Be warned, it's very, very violent at times. Exceptionally so. It is not necessarily a family-friendly webcomic. I think that comes down to, at a certain point, you can make most races function in a good capacity as long as you have good writing skills and you can do it. You don't even need good writing skills. It comes down to, can you roleplay this in a way that makes sense for both your race and the game you're in? Like, I've played in evil games where you've had very evil orcs and stuff like that, but, but good graces can work fine for many games. And orcs can work as very good, or any race really can work as a good race. It's just it's how you play it. And that comes down to anything. It's just, it's just how you play it. Like, I can play an evil human, I can play a good human. I can play an evil orc, I can play a good orc. It's just... Right, uh, we have to avoid getting too many special snowflakes. Ah, uh, you mean the Legion of Dritzt? Yeah, Tiffany hit on that one. Okay, Old King Cole asks about, with Mythweavers games, you can link the game to the MythWiki. Then they've hammered their head against the wall trying to get that to work. Are there plans to make some kind of guide for DMs linking world wikis to their game? Now, as far as my understanding goes, and David, please correct me if I'm wrong, we are looking at starting to phase out the myth wiki, looking at a better route. I believe we already have phased it out to some extent. Like, I think the wiki itself, as it used to be, is pretty much dead. I believe... I mean, the problem was we were using MediaWiki before. The person who was maintaining MediaWiki stopped maintaining it, and neither Rigo nor I have the desire or effort or time to maintain that. So I think right now we're looking at other options for it, but as far as the wiki used to exist, it is no longer really, I think, supported. I can talk about this a little bit because I used it very heavily for Pond, which is a setting I designed, and then also how I got my start as a staff member was as part of the wiki staff, and it does still work. I would be happy to write a guide of some kind explaining how it works, if that is something that people would be interested in seeing, but I am a little nervous for the day that the wiki finally does go away, because I really don't want to lose all the things that are in there. I'm sure whatever we end up doing with it, we'll end up having some kind of, we'll end up porting any data that is there to whatever is currently, or whatever we move to. It's more along the lines of, it's just, it's a very separate, it's a system that exists outside of any code we've written, and it's a very different system, so it's hard for us to maintain on the same level we do the website at the same time as the website. Yeah, having worked with it extensively with Plugsy many years ago, it is very difficult to do common things. It's extremely powerful, but it, it's very difficult to do just the basic things that most of our users want to do. So it turned out to be almost more trouble than it was worth to turn it over to the users and let them use it the way it was intended. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's based off MediaWiki, and at the same time, it's just it's an entirely different system and entirely different code base. And it, the integration of those two was never great in the first place, and we're at a certain level of that where we just need to figure out a better math forward. And what that path is, I don't, we don't have a, a clear answer yet. And I'll point out the thread tools we have are pretty robust and you usually put most of the information you need on the forum anyway. So, Old King Cole, if you would like me to take the time to write up a basic primer on how to use the wiki in the meantime until we have a better system in place, get some support, talk to some other users, and I would be happy to. All right, I think we have time for a couple more questions. 
No question too big. No inquiry about Nathan's love life too personal. Every time. Well, once you start a tradition, you can't well abandon it, right? Kimmy, the reason all the games you get pulled into as a Modron and Planescape die is because the world hates you. That, and there's probably people who just didn't really know what to expect when they went to the DMing a game. It's very easy to get in over your head. Planescape is doomed anyway. Like, everything I've tried with that, too, has died. I think it's just cursed. Planescape encourages a lot of unique character concepts. Unfortunately, many of them don't work well with each other in the setting. All right, Mick the Rogue asks, any comment on your love-hate relationship with Grok? Nathan, I believe that's addressed to you. So, it's not that I hate Grok. It's that I just didn't expect him to become this huge icon that he is, and now people are asking for things that I never even intended to be possible for him. So, it's becoming a much bigger project than I was initially expecting when I talked about Grok the first time. You dug yourself into a hole. Exactly. Who or what is Grok? Uh, the question that spawned it all. So Grok is the unofficial mascot of Weaving Myths. He is His full title is Grok the Dwarf Stomper, and he is an orc on a quest to reclaim his favorite sword and avenge the death of his one true love, Grokula. I'd agree on Tiffany there with that. Planescape is a lot like Traveler and that you need to really... Traveler is a lot of fun, but it's also a thing you have to really specialize and, and hone down on. Like, like you need to pick what you want to do. That's what I love about Traveler, personally. Like, for me, that's why I love Traveler. All right. Any other questions? I don't know, David. Is there a way to set up a forum so that other players can edit it in the game? So, and I'm going to have to... Say I have not followed up with the most recent versions of Visual Bulletin that we are currently using. In the code base, it very much varies. It, it, it calls out the player for editing, but would it be technically feasible to allow other players to edit the same post? Yes. Would it be a good use of our time? I'm not sure that's the correct... I don't know the correct answer to that. I believe when Rodrigo was talking about it a while back, he was looking at an option that's more similar to something like Obsidian Portal but I'm not sure what the progress is on that particular front. And if I could suggest Old King Cole, I would go start a separate thread for additions to other setting threads and just let players kind of post what they want added, and then you can just cut and paste from that into the actual threads. Yeah, the big issue technically there is that a lot of this information is cached, so when you load a page, to save ourselves on database queries, we're caching a lot of information off, including who posted a post. And this is what, this is, what use, is used by the actual code. You, you actually get to load a page that says you have the edit button available to you in the first place. So is it possible we could, we could build this into this information? Yes. Again, I'm not sure on the actual technical complexity of that because I have not followed the most version, recent versions of the code to tell that. But it could be a solution. I doubt it would be a long-term solution. It would be... The issue when, so when we modify V Bolton, which is the system we're built on top of, every time we modify that, we're adding extra complexity on top of upgrading it to a new version. Because every time we have to upgrade to a new version, we have to then take all of our code changes and then merge those into the most recent version of that code, of the V Bolton code base. And our changes are pretty extensive. We're talking about changes to how threads are created, how, how we create forums in the first place. So while it's a very, that function itself is by default very much admin focused and, and not even available outside of the system. So we had to create a custom system just to be able to create forums 
through a form like we do currently. And a lot of that comes back to we had to modify base vBulletin code to do that, which makes upgrading vBulletin a much more complex situation. That's not even to talk about private threads. Because private threads are completely custom on top of this, which are not even by default a feature of vBulletin. In short, David and Rodrigo are wizards that make everything possible on Mythweavers. Who knew coding could be so complicated? The people that are wise enough to learn not to code. Well, there is some speculation that most people who program are probably somewhere on the autism schedule level, so. Masochists, at very least. At the very least, we're masochists, for sure. All right, I think we have time for one more question before we need to wrap up for the evening. On cue, Chimi to the rescue. As always, Chimi asks, do you like cheese? Yes, I love cheese. Oh, God, yes. Uh... Any dust cheese? Any any like like give me like a young Gouda? I will I will eat the crap out of it all I day. Love, I love cheese too. I'm honestly not picky. I adore cheese as my wife has learned to hate every time she buys anything because I'll add it to half the stuff I eat. My favorite cheese is Munster. It's a very mild cheese, very delicious. Mick the Rogue, my least favorite cheese is blue cheese. I just, I don't like the funkiness of it. I, I love funky beer, I don't love funky cheese. I like a really good smoked Gouda. Man, I cannot stand blue cheese. Yeah, I just, I just can't do it. I also really like blue cheese. I love blue cheese, y'all are crazy. Actually, I, I, I'm not a fan of smoked Gouda either, mostly because I like, I, I love young Gouda. And young Gouda is essentially the most mild version of Gouda you can get, and that inside of a pasticci is the best thing on the planet. I don't know. One of my vices, which I don't get to indulge very often, is brie. Ooh, a good brie is great, too. Especially smoked. A good brie is hard to go... You can't, you can't complain about a good brie. Oh, and a really good aged cheddar is just great, too. I do like me some sharp cheddar, definitely. Though, so when I'm lazy, you know, like a little... um. A very easy, like, cheese you can get off Amazon for delivery is just straight up, like, baby, the, the Baby Bells. Those things... Really bad cheese, really easy to get a hold of. Today I learned you can order cheese from Amazon. Yes, you can. And I do it quite often because I'm lazy. Oh, you can get all sorts of stuff from Amazon Prime. I'm not even talking about Amazon now, Prime. I'm talking about Amazon now. Oh, yeah, now. That's what I mean, too. All right. And with that, the second episode of Weaving Myths comes to a close. So thank you, everyone, so much for joining us today. It's been a blast, and we appreciate all of the questions and comments from the text chat, as always. I'm Nathan. I've been joined by Colin, Mordai, Ruben, and David. Surprise guest, David. So thank you all so much for listening, and keep on waving those myths.